0: Ladies and
1: gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Look, I wish y'all could see me right now. It's a good thing I don't do this podcast on video. Never doubt my commitment to this podcast. I have built a blanket fort on an air mattress in order to record this podcast. Yesterday, the movers came and took all of my stuff. My worldly possessions are on a truck bound for Maryland as we speak. I knew I had to do the podcast today, so I kept all my equipment and I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I'll just record in the morning. No worries. Totally forgot that I live in a loft with these high, high ceilings and these concrete floors. I sat down to record. It just sounded like one big echo sound just bouncing all over the place. sounded like trash. I was like, oh, my God, I can't do the podcast. So the blanket that I slept with last night, sans pillow, because I forgot to keep a pillow. I have that blanket over my head to record this podcast episode. That's love. Don't ever doubt me. <laughs> I have a very weird reaction to like all my stuff. I th- I'm thinking it's about the stuff. I didn't feel it until the stuff was gone. But sitting up in like an empty apartment, an empty loft. I In general, like I spend a lot of time by myself and it never bothers me. I prefer to be alone a lot of the time. Occupational hazard as a writer, like you need to be alone a lot of the time. Podcast, same thing. Having people around, making noise in the background doesn't really work for work. But just in general, I like myself. I like spending time with myself. I have no issues being alone. But for the first time in a really long time, like yesterday, like after they took all my stuff and I was just in here, I felt lonely. And I don't usually feel that way. It's a very uh, uncomfortable feeling for me. So I sat in it for all of like five minutes and then I ordered Prosecco because I was like, oh, no, it's one of those like what hurts worse, the pain or the hangover. I don't have a hangover. It's just Prosecco. But I did drink a significant amount of it. But I was like, "Ooh!" some days I can just sit in my discomfort and other days I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Anybody trying to think about all that right now? I had an excellent birthday weekend. Thank you so much for everyone who sent birthday wishes and greetings and blessings and prayers and songs and DMs and texts and emails and WhatsApps. A bunch of people don't know where I am, so they just WhatsApp me because that's safe. You know that's going to reach me wherever I am in the world. But in L.A. for now, my last day in L.A. is Friday, which is weird. We've talked about my my experience in L.A. and a good chunk of it was COVID. I don't know that L.A. got like a really fair shot for me. Just hanging out over over the weekend and actually, you know, being in L.A. with it really being open, open and and people milling about, which it's, it's an entirely different experience than it's been for the last two years or so for obvious reasons. But it feels like, oh, this is the L.A. that I was supposed to experience. So even though we talked about how like L.A. has never been a 10 for me, it was also L.A. during COVID. I was only here for what, 10, 11 months before COVID hit. I was just getting my footing and it was good. Like right before COVID hit, like I was, you know, I was out and about and I was being mixy and, and and having a great time. So even when I'm driving around L.A., like I don't know that I'm done with this city yet. I'm not putting a timeline on on how long I'll be in Ghana. It could be six months. It could be a year. It could be two years. I have a couple friends who've moved to, to various countries overseas and they said they were only going for six months or a year and then ended up being there for like seven, eight, ten. Some of them are still there. So we'll see. I'm just going to let life play out as it is. Um, but if I do come back to the States, L.A. is not completely ruled out for me. There's still some things I would like to do and places I would like to see that I haven't done yet. I guess I could just see them as a tourist. I don't know. We'll see how life unfolds. But I had an amazing birthday weekend. I told you him came out to celebrate my birthday. Or maybe I told you it was a visitor. I said it was a visitor. And then a couple people asked me, and they were like, is it, is it, is it him? It was him. But he came out to celebrate my birthday and we had an amazing weekend. I do this thing with him that I literally I do with one other person in the world, my dad. And I haven't done it in years, 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 years. But on Saturday morning, we were headed out and I was looking for I had my phone. My apartment was full of boxes and there was stuff all over the place. So I was trying to like find my purse and he was like, what you need your purse for? I was like, I'm just gonna go outside with like no ID, no money, no card, no what? You sound crazy. And he was like, You with me? What you need that for? He was like, Come on. Are you crazy? Come on. Okay. I used to do it with him all the time in my 20s, which was insane. I'd be walking around New York City with a phone, a MetroCard, and him. <sighs> he wanted to see my neighborhood, so we went on a walk and we got coffee and then we got breakfast were out for like a good two hours and my nails look like trash because you know moving packing and I wanted to get my nails done and there was a really cute shop that I'd heard about but hadn't been and we passed right by it and I was like oh see this is why I should have brought my purse because I would just get my nails done and blah 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 and he was like so get your nails done I was like I need to go home and get money and he was like just go get your nails done like I'll just pay for it here just take my card and he just reached in his wallet and gave me his card and I was like what the fuck is happening right now So he got my nails and my toes done for me. And by the time I got back to the house, he'd asked me if there was anything I needed him to help with as as far as the move, because I was really paranoid about him coming to the house. And I was like, I got boxes everywhere. And he was like, I'm not coming to see the boxes. And and you told me you were moving. I, I expect there would be boxes. But I told him, I was like, no, I got these arm wires that are not going, but they need to be taken down. And then I had like some boxes that needed to go to Goodwill. I told you about that, how like I had a bunch of stuff that I wasn't taking with me. So by the time I got back, he had taken down the armoires, he'd taken the stuff to goodwill, and he swept my floors. If you know me, you know my love language is acts of service. Like, if you were going to be present in my life, please find ways to make my life easier. Like, this is my love language. Keep me from stressing out. Help me help you help us. We ended up spending the day in Malibu. I wanted to get lunch by the water, and then we went up into the hills and went to Malibu Farms. And we went to this, like, really sexy spot called Better Than Sex, we walked in and I was like, is this a swingers club? It was It's super sexy. It's like chandeliers and heavy, dark um, curtains. It's only booth and it's set up so you sit next to each other instead of across from each other. It's a dessert bar. Everything is just very, very sexy. Like the descriptions of the drinks or the food. It sounds like you're reading pages from a romance novel. And it's like designed for people to like be able to like make out in public, but in private. They give you a lot of uh, privacy and discretion. So I was like, I'm sure those waiters have seen all types of shit. So yeah, so that was my birthday. It was, it was, it was amazing. Totally low-key, just like I wanted. He had asked me, he was like, so for your birthday, like, what, what are we doing? Are we doing Demetria? Are we doing Demi? Are we doing Belle? Because these are all three distinct personalities. He was like, which, which one of these personalities am I catering to? Because those are all different experiences. And I was like, no, Demetria is, is fine. And he was like, that's who I prefer. I was like, that's who you met first. <laughs> it's good times. Next year, though, (laughs) I'm going to do some over-the-top shit. I was, um, what is the guy's name? He's one of my faves. Swanky Jerry. No swanky, no styling. From um, Young Famous African. Young African Famous. Young Famous African on Netflix. I love that dude. He's my favorite personality from that show. But I follow him on Instagram. Dude dresses his ass off. Like, his life as curated, because I do understand that all Instagram accounts are curated. His curated life on Instagram is amazing it's like watching a tv show like he is the tv show i'm like you're you're your co-stars and everybody i didn't dislike anybody on the show but i was like sir you are the show but he just had a birthday party he's a fellow cancer happy birthday to swanky jerry like i know this man but he had an amazing birthday party i think it was in nigeria but he had a dinner party for a bunch of his friends sexy sexy so sexy and i was like yo next year i should be somewhere on the continent of africa I'm doing big African energy, some real over the top sexy shit. And we in Ghana, we go into the polo club, we get in a private room. That'll be Ajwa. Ajwa is extra. That said, we have a gigantic treat for this episode. Actually, it's my friend, Will Jawando. He is a city council member in Montgomery County, Maryland. He's currently up for re-election. He is also the author of My Seven Black Fathers, a young activist memoir on race, family, and the mentors who made him whole. One of those mentors is Barack Obama. But I ran into Will and his amazing wife, Michelle. Remember about a month ago, Michelle Obama had done a big event in L.A. when we all vote. I ran into Will and Michelle, not First Lady Michelle, his wife Michelle, who totally has like Michelle Obama energy, by the way. But I ran into them at a fundraiser that weekend and Will mentioned he had a book and I loved the title of it. And I was like, oh my God, you have to come on the podcast. And he was like, I would totally come on the podcast. So today he's on the podcast. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to my friend, Will Jawando. He's joined us to talk about his book, which I could not put down. If I had a book club, This would be our monthly select. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, those who don't identify as either, please welcome Will Jawando to Ratchet and Respectable. Am I pronouncing your last name right? I'm notorious for like butchering people's names. You said it perfectly. Perfectly. Wonderful. I am very happy to have you on Ratchet and Respectable.
2: I'm glad to be on. I love the title. I love you. And I'm just happy that uh, I get to grace the stage with you. Yay. You've been gracing a lot of stages lately, because I saw
1: you maybe like three weeks ago, like out here in L.A., and then I was on your Instagram. I saw you just got back from Essence, like what, on Sunday?
2: Yeah, back on Sunday in time to March and Fourth of July parades here back in Maryland. I've been all over the place.
1: That's right. And you're in the middle of an upcoming election. Today is the first day of early voting in Maryland?
2: Yes, yes. July 7th through the 14th. It was moved uh, by court order. First time we've ever had a July election here in the state of Maryland. But we know how important it is that we get out and vote, make our voices heard. Rights are not guaranteed. We've seen that in in the last several weeks. So, yeah, making sure that we're getting people out to vote. And yes, I'm running for re-election to Montgomery County Council, which is the largest jurisdiction in Maryland. So, exciting times.
1: Okay. Well, I wish I lived in Maryland and I wish I lived in Montgomery County. PG County, people are going to hate me for saying that because I would vote for you.
2: I appreciate that.
1: How was Essence? This was the first year I didn't go, and I was like watching everyone online, and I was like, "Oh, I should have just gone. I should have just gone."
2: (laughs) I usually work it. I know, and it it had been a few years since I've been, uh, and it was it was cool. It was really cool. You know, you know my lovely wife Michelle Mm -hmm. Wando, and it was actually her first Essence. So we it was the first time we had gone together. I had been a couple times before, and it was really special because I was able to do a book signing and a book talk about my seven black fathers. And I did a panel. This was the first year they had uh, a men's vertical called the In His Zone, the men's experience. And mm-hmm. uh, it was the second floor of the convention center. And you know how Essence is laid out. I had a shop and a, a bar there and pool tables <laughs> and programming. It was just, it was really cool. And I uh, did a, a great panel with uh, my brother, Devon Franklin, called uh, It Takes a Village. And we talked about, you know, just our various perspectives of how to Help our young people in the Black community and our, our various books, and it was just a great experience. And uh really, really enjoyed it. I was, we, and then of course saw Janet Jackson live in concert for the first time in my life. So you know that was that was amazing. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So it was good. It was good to be with you know you know how Essence is, and particularly coming out of COVID. Obviously, we're still dealing with it, but just to be with your people in a space where you're celebrating our culture is just a, it's a special thing.
1: Yes, 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 yes. I'm I'm so mad I missed it. You come back; it'll be it'll be there next year. You know, I loved seeing the experience um, at the men's panel. Like I, I saw clips that you posted on your page of, of you and Devon Franklin, and then I was just going through other um, other men who were, who had attended and posted. And I think it's so important for men to commune, have conversation, be in conversation with one another, talk to and with one another, which is really the, the backbone, the underpinning of your book.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, t- to your point, before we jump into the book, I think it's so rare. Like, you know, Black women, and I mentioned this uh, at Essence, you know, you guys are the cornerstone, the bedrock. You know, you've been holding down our community, our families um, in so many ways, our institutions, you know, church and and be way beyond that, our nonprofits and, and go go down the list, our civil rights organizations. And I think, and but also you all, communicate better, you know, like with each other to, and, and I think it's important that we're intentional about creating spaces for, for black men and boys uh, to, to be able to do that. And, and, and I think so kudos to essence for doing that, but yes, you're right. I mean, the book is about relationships. Uh, It's about particularly these fatherhood relationships, these mentorship relationships that I was privileged to have, but that we all have in some form or capacity, some more than others, and how just powerful they are uh, in the lives of Black men and boys in particular. They literally can save and change lives. And I think that's a story that we don't hear enough um, and we undersell what is actually happening already. in our.
1: Well, can I tell you, when you told me about the book, what I ran into um, to you and Michelle out here in LA, I've said for years that there are so many men who make a really good living or build major platforms off giving advice to women and telling women what right. to do. Right. And I've always said, I was like, men, go talk to your boys, like leave women alone, go talk to each other. So when you were like, I'm talking to other men, I was like, well, let me highlight this because I, I want to support it because I've been complaining about it. So when I see somebody doing it, I want to support. I got a copy of the book and I said, let me read the first 50 pages just so I can have like an informed understanding of what this book is about. I cried reading the foreword. <laughs> Yeah. You were talking about your friend. Um, starts, his name starts with a K.
2: Kalfani. Yeah.
1: Yes, Kalfani. But you were talking about your friend, and I cried reading the foreword. And it, it wasn't very long. You didn't have overly, it wasn't a, a very long story about him. But the way you captured him and your friendship and where your story went one way and his went another, it broke my heart.
2: Yeah. 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 I, I, um, it breaks my heart almost daily, you know, to be honest. When I think about Calfani, I get emotional almost every time I talk about him because I met him in the fifth grade, as, you, as you've as you read, and he was the cool kid. He was popular. He was smart. He was the son of immigrants like me. He was the best basketball player at the school. I was everything the opposite of that. I was chubby and not popular and not coordinated. And, and he took me under his wing. Um, and actually, when I was thinking about writing this book, um, he was, I almost made him one of my seven black fathers. Cause I think it's important to talk about peer mentorship too. Um, and, uh, but I, I chose to include him in the introduction because we really had really different paths.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home. And then there's a version of it where you have someone help you. You watch them do it the right way and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. <laughs> or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And
2: uh, I have no doubt that if he had these men, the seven black fathers that I had and many others, women included and many other mentors, that I think his he would still be alive today. He loses his life when we're exiting high school, I talk about this distinction of him being a dis, uh, decision kid versus me being a destination kid. You know, when the bell rings at three o'clock, I had a place to go. My destination was my mom's job, my de facto after school program, where I actually encounter three of my seven black fathers, my stepfather and two of my mother's co-workers, Jay Fletcher and Dean Sam Um And uh, Calfani is a decision kid. His mom works two jobs. His dad's not in the picture every day after school. He decides where he's going to go. Some days it's the basketball court. Some days he goes with me. But many days it's he goes to to his neighborhood and and gets involved with people uh, and ends up dealing drugs and loses his life in that life. And I just think about him often. And there's in all of us have a story like that. All of us know people in our past that have had those divergent paths. And I really believe that if he had access to these father figures, these mentors, that he would still be here. And it's something I think about all the time.
1: It's still in the foreword. There was, you ran some statistics about how, I think it's only like 1% of black boys, like all things um, considered, like the, uh, I guess you were saying like the social and economic and financial and neighborhood, all of those things don't as much matter as whether you have like a black mentor in your house. Otherwise it's, I guess one per, one, only 1% of black boys is on par with like where 1% of like your average white kid is.
2: Yeah, it's so it's, it's really interesting. It's so one of the things that helped me frame the book. There's this study uh, that was done by researchers at Harvard and Stanford and the IRS and the Census Bureau came out a few years ago. And it, it looked at the 20 million children born between 1978 and 1983. And I'm in that zone. And it looked at where did they live? through the census information, what was the construction of the families, two parent, one parent level of education, all the things you learn from the census and many of the things that are used for, used as excuses to talk about why people have different outcomes. Um, And then it looked at their IRS data of their parents. What were they making? You know, where, where, where did they fall in the income quartiles? And then it looked 40 years later, 35, 40 years later, where are these kids now, these 20 million children that were born in the U S during that time? And, And it showed some really interesting things and devastating things. And one of the things it showed that uh, for black boys and white boys who were born in the same neighborhoods with the same income, with the same family structure, same level of education, all the things we hear that are excuses about why there's disparate outcomes, when you controlled for all of that, these black boys and white boys from similar circumstances had wide earnings gaps 35, 40 years later. And that was true in 99% of zip codes in the United States, 99%. There were these 1% zip codes, these black boys safe zones, where black boys and white boys from the same background would do are doing similarly well 35, 40 years later, which we would want to see, right, if you're given similar opportunity. There was also another thing in this study that showed that if you're a millionaire and you're a black child and born to a family that is earning over a million dollars a year, that you have a 50% chance of falling to the bottom quartile of earnings. Uh, It's a flip of a coin. If you're a black millionaire that you're going to drop into poverty. Um, And if you're a white child, 90% chance you stay a millionaire or more. Um, Just devastating information, kind of confirming what we already knew that opportunity is not equal uh, and race does matter. Um, But these, I grew up adjacent to one of these 1% zip codes, downtown Silver Spring, 20910 where my mother worked and where I met, three of my seven black fathers. And where statistically significant difference of these zip codes is they had a higher percentage of working class black fathers in them. And so I literally benefited from being closer to these men and having the chance to have more of these relationships. Now, they're happening all across the country in the 99 percent, of course, but we need to enable more of them. And that's one of kind of the underpinnings of the book.
1: Yeah. So it's like if ever you question the importance of black fathers, which people should stop doing, by the way, but if ever there was a question like this absolutely confirms it, like you are necessary, you are needed. It's so very important.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. But also the other thing I'm trying to do here is expand that definition. Right. Yes. I don't have seven biological fathers. I had I have one from whom I have really no relationship for much of my life, early life. Uh, and creates the, act, the void and the need for these other fathers, these other men, one of being my stepfather, two of my mom's co-workers, my, Mr. Williams, my only black male teacher that I would have in fourth grade. Um, they fathered me, too. And I think that's the other thing I'm hoping to do here is to expand that definition, uh, because we all uh, have a role to play in fathering and mothering and mentoring and helping our children develop.
1: Yes, and I think that part that you said about not being the biological father but being a father figure, in some way, is so important. Can we start? Can we talk about Joseph? Sure, sure. Oh my god, I cried again. And look, I'm a cancer. I cry all the time, but like I had boohoo moments reading about Joseph. You talk about, I guess, you're you're, not even a guess. Your parents had split up, and then Joseph came into the picture, and you thought because your father left that your that Joseph, who was your mother's second husband. So your stepfather, you thought that he would leave as well. And then there's a moment where like that all comes together. Can you tell that story to us where, where Joseph sort of pours into you and says, I am not leaving you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Joseph is, uh, the way the book is organized is it's it's introduction or forward, as you said, and seven chapters in each of my seven Black fathers is one chapter. And Joseph Jacob, my stepfather, who I meet uh, just after my parents' divorce, When I'm six years old, he is the printer at my mom's new job where she's the production manager, where it's a newsletter publishing company, where they uh, outside of D.C., where people write about various topics. And my mom puts the artwork together and Joseph prints it. And so they have a working relationship and that's how they meet. and um, And they end up getting together. And he comes into my life at a really critical time where I have described, as you've read, my father is, a, I describe him in the book, my biological father as an absent presence. You know, he's in the house until I'm six, but there's no relationship. I'm, I'm yearning for him to engage with me and he doesn't. And I find out later, you know, there's many reasons why his depression, his dissatisfaction with his own life. But for me as a young child, I'm Just yearning for that attention, and Joseph is the first black man, someone who looks like me, who gives me that attention, and it's overwhelming at first. You know, I I I actually struggle to try to figure out what it is or why it's being directed at me at first, and I'm angry about that. It's not coming from my dad, and you know, some of the similar things I think a lot of children of divorced parents go through as transition, but I think it's made even deeper because of. My yearning for connection to my dad, and he's he gives me a very practical present love, um, and is dependent and is always asking me about my day and showing me how to do things and just loving my mother and I'm I'm watching all this happen, and eventually, uh, you know, the callousness that had just started to develop in me, of which is something I see now and is something I hope that this book can help identify and, you know, remediate in some ways for people who are able to read it or be exposed to it, is this hardening that happens for so many of our young Black boys uh, who haven't been shown love and or who are told that they're not worthy of love by this society. And Joseph catches me before I fall into that. And, 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 and it's just dogged. And, and we have this really emotional scene that, you know, I, you probably that you're talking about, you cried about and where I'm like, well, you're going to leave me too. And, you know, just like my dad and, you know, you're not going to be any different. And he just really tells me very calmly, I'm never leaving. I love you. I love your mother. And, uh, you know, it's just a transformational moment and it breaks through uh, and it, and it gives me the capacity to accept the relationships that I would later have with these other Black men. I think that's another key point is that these are two-way street relationships. You can't, uh, they don't go just one way. You have to be open to them. Um, And for many of our Black children, particularly our Black boys, that's the first step uh, is being open to having these relationships.
1: Relationships. I'm I'm crying again listening to you retell the story. I'm so emotional. (laughs) Mr. Williams. And he's your fourth grade teacher. He's a black fourth grade teacher. And what stood out to me so much, even like even the b- very beginning of the story, when I started reading, I was like, I never had a black male teacher.
2: Wow. Yeah. yeah.
1: Like I don't I never had a black male teacher. I never had a black male college professor.
2: Wow. Grew okay. up in PG
1: County, which is predominantly black. Never.
2: Mm-mm. Well, you're not alone to make sure you're not alone. I mean, black male teachers are literally unicorns. Um, there are only 2% of the teaching profession. I talk about this in the book, Um, you know, and it is one of the ways that I think, you know, I'm a policy, I'm a council member, I'm a lawyer. And, you know, there's a call to action in this book. One of them is that we need to recruit, train, support more black male teachers um, as a policy goal and objective. Um, Because, you know, I, I, Mr. Williams, I meet in the fourth grade, I'm at a new school um, and he's the first and only black male teacher I would have. He's the first black man I see wear a shirt and tie every day, you know, and he uh, ends up uh, giving me my first tie and teaching me how to tie it. Uh, I look in the mirror today and tie my tie before I go to work. I think of Mr. Williams. I only knew him nine months at the time. I never knew his first name. Um, I didn't learn it until I researched him 35 years later in preparation to write this book. Um, he passed away in 2019, so I just missed him. Um, but I was able to con- get in contact with his, uh, his children and his grandchildren uh, to learn more about his, his life outside of the classroom. Um, and he was just uh, an amazing person. He, he helped me deal with bullying. Uh, he, he, he was the first person I saw code switch you know, I I see him talking to a janitor in the hallway after school and using slang. And I'm like, Mr. Williams, <laughs> you, know, you use slang? It, and and he didn't know it, but he was showing me it was okay to be more than one thing. And uh, so he was just transformational, not just for me, but for everyone in our class. He he helped us work together. He taught us math. I mean, I, math was, was my favorite subject from that point on. Uh, he just had a transformational impact. And I think it's one of the things that is a through line through the book, is that all these relationships are different. They're all different durations in time, um, and but they can be transformational no matter the, the sh- size, shape, or duration of the relationship. It's just, we need to have
1: them. The duration part stuck out to me because you say early on that, you know, I only knew him as, you know, my teacher for fourth grade. And I think sometimes when we talk about being um, a mentor to someone or being a figure, father figure of some sort to someone. You think of it as like, a lifelong endeavor or a years long in le- endeavor, at least, but literally just being present for a short period of time when someone is just in need um, it makes a huge difference.
2: As you know, you remember your fourth grade teacher. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things we were talking about when I was just at Essence. Imagine if every black man and woman and and everyone in our community saw it as their job to. Have mentoring moments, mothering, fathering moments with black children. They see them on the street. They give them an encouraging word. They they are interacting with them wherever they see them. Imagine the aggregate power of that, um, and even if it was just a moment. And of course, some it won't be just a moment because some relationships will form. Some will be longer. And and you know, I know Joseph as my he's my stepfather, he's my father. I, he's still in my life. That's been a lifelong relationship. But not all of these were that. And I just think that there's power in that. In fact, when I had my um, the first book event at Politics and Prose here in DC, uh, three of my seven black fathers were there. It Was emotional; you'd have been crying too there. Um, the I had Joseph J. Fletcher and Wayne Holmes, and one of the things they remarked, which just you know was stunning to me and to I think many in the audience, is that. They, did, they both said to Jay and Wayne that they didn't know the impact they were having on me. They didn't realize it. And I think when you think about that, that's just powerful in and of itself. I'm writing a book about these men. They didn't even know that they had this impact on me. And um, imagine the impact we could all have if we just took the time however short, however long, to engage.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about two more. I mean, all of the, the... The men that you describe in this book are super, super important. I wish we had the bandwidth to get to all of them, I know, I know. Um, but I definitely want to talk about Barack Obama. Sure, yeah, because that's one of them. I know people are going to be like, "Wait, what? Like, he's a father figure? What?"
2: Yeah, so I, you know, I meet Barack Obama when I am twenty-five. Uh, another thing I think is important here is that these are these are, we have a lifelong need for fathering, for mm-hmm. mentoring. Uh, It does not go away. Um, And he's really critical in my development as a husband and a father. Uh, I meet him. I'm working for I I make it my mission to uh, to seek him out after I see him speak at 2004 convention speech in Boston that put him on the map Mm -hmm. as he's uh, being elected to the United States Senate. Uh, And I'm working for Nancy Pelosi at the time. And I walk across the Capitol and introduce myself and give my resume for every day, every once a week for about six months until someone meets with me. And so I, I sought out this mentorship relationship, which I think is another point. Some, sometimes you got to go after it mm-hmm. and, and he mentored me. He fathered me before I even met him. I think, to, you know, another thing is how I'm very uh, cognizant about how I carry myself, what I say in the public as a public official um, for some, you can get mentored you can get fathered by through youtube through you know through people you see and and model and you need you know we need physical relationships but i just i think we again we need to expand the definition but i i get to work for him in the senate in the white house uh end up getting to spend my first father's day with him playing basketball he helps me reclaim my love of basketball i tell that story in the book um about i played in college and had a horrible coach and- And so, yeah, he's really important in that aspect. I get married, have two of my four children while I'm working for him in the Senate in the White House. And he really helps me uh, in the small moments, but also by his example of, you know, how to be a present father, how to make sure I'm being a uh, helpful and contributing husband. And, uh, you know, that's it was invaluable information that I that I in, in a relationship that I still treasure to this day.
1: Two things about that story stand out to me. One, how accessible Obama used to be if you were in D.C. at that time. Uh Like I used to he would be at CBC and you could just literally like just walk right up to him and be like, hey, how are you? Like, oh, you're running for office. Like, I I hope you win. I'm going to vote for you. (laughs) Walk right up to him. Security wouldn't even stop you. It was ridiculous. Um, Try that now. That wouldn't go so well. Not for me. No, no, no. Maybe for you. Not at all.
2: I remember walking with him and, you know, just going to lunch like in D.C., like, you know, walking around Capitol Hill. It's like Mm -hmm. crazy how things change.
1: Um, but no, the importance, I think, that you were saying of just sort of uh, being able to watch someone from a distance and how they carry themselves um, and also seeing their consistency. Yes. One of the things that, that stood out to me just throughout the stories that I read in your book is so much of what you picked up on wasn't always conversations that were had or things that were said. It was watching what people did.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that is that's such an important point, and that one that I haven't really articulated the way you did. But like, you know, I think of Dean Sam for example, who's the, the IT director, IT manager at my mom's job, who's the Nigerian, who ends up taking me to Nigeria for the first time and helping me connect to my, that part of my heritage. Because what I lost with the lack of relationship from my dad was not only a relationship with my biological father it was also access to that side of my heritage mm-hmm. um, and which i was yearning for and and he helps reconnect me but he has what i call in the book this nigerian hustle right you know no one hustles like a nigerian you know yes and <laughs> and, and he has it he's an entrepreneur and he's got jobs he works in it but he's also working overseas and we never talked about it i saw it you yeah. know, and I and I demonstrated in my life. Now I, I attribute my stick to itiveness, my go-get'em attitude, in part to Dean. But like you said, that was an observed behavior. It wasn't It wasn't necessarily discussed.
1: Yeah, I picked up on it when you were um, you were talking about how people would refer to your stepfather is Mister. Your friends, especially, would refer to your stepfather as Mister. Jawando, and he didn't correct them. Yes. And you were yes. like, he was just secure in who he was. So it wasn't necessary for him to be like, I am not, I am so-and-so. And he was just like, okay, sure. I know what you mean.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, humility, being confident in who you are, um, all those things that are embedded in, in how he responded there are, again, are observed behaviors. I mean, you always hear the old adage, like 90% of communication is nonverbal, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's even more so... In a mentorship, fathering, mothering relationship, as a child, you're, just, you're a sponge. You're soaking up everything and you are literally learning how to be. Um, and that's why it's so critical that especially for our community where hundreds of years have been intentionally dedicated to telling us that we're not something or that we're less than or that we are something that we should aspire to be anything than who we are. It's so important that we give uh, models and examples of what we, of the greatness of our people and who we can be. Um, and that's why everyone has a role to play, both individually and personally, but also from a policy and program set, uh, uh, point of view as well. Point
1: of view as well. Can we talk about your dad? Yeah. I did not get to his portion in the book. I was trying oh, to. You're
2: going to be crying. Don't I tell you? I'm
1: that. crying throughout this whole book. I'm going to be dehydrated at the end of this book. It's, it's <laughs> your fault. From what I read, you reconnected with your father toward the end of his life. Is that accurate? And you Correct. helped him when he was ill. You took care of him while he was sick.
2: Yeah, we actually. So we are. We start reconnecting. I mentioned Dean takes me to Nigeria. It's my first time going. My father had not been back in 30 years. And so question number one, when I'm meeting with all of my family and my uncle lives there and he's taking me around is, where's your dad? Mm -hmm. And it puts kind of like what I call this good familial West African pressure on my dad to to go back. Um, And, you know, I find out. uh, So we take a trip, really a transformational trip together to Nigeria two years after I go for the first time. And Michelle is actually on this trip. She's my girlfriend at the time. Um and I was moved to ask her to go with me because I knew she was going to be more than my girlfriend, you know, whether she knew it or not and a question when did you know? you know, I knew pretty early with the show we meet in July, all this is happening at the same time, by the way, so I meet her in July of two thousand and four, you know um literally right around the time i Barack Obama is giving his speech at the convention and um, and all that's happening. And I'm graduate. I'm getting ready to go to law school and she's uh, I'm in law school and she's she's in her head into her third year in law school at Carolina. So I meet her in 04 of July 04. She, I take this trip with my father in December 04. Mm. So she's, it's it's within six months of meeting. And I probably knew by the end of the summer that she was the right person.
1: Like I be telling folks, interested men act interested, and they know when they know, and it don't take all year. I'm sorry, detour, detour,
2: detour. <laughs> no, that's that's a whole another conversation, but we should we should have that one too, you know. But yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, it's just it's whether you're scared of knowing, or you think you're missing out, or whatever, you know. And I just I didn't have that, you know. Here I am, you know, 18 years later. So exactly. Um, but I'm sorry, you went back to Nigeria with your dad Nigeria. and Michelle, okay. With my dad and Michelle, we, for his first time in 30 years, we take this, you know, really emotional trip. We visit the the house he grew up in his, his parents are buried in the backyard. He hasn't visited the grave, uh, since his mother died, which, you know, I talk about that in the trip, you know, that my, that side of my family is Muslim. So they have to be buried within 48 hours. His mom dies when I'm 14 we don't make the trip because we can't afford it. I'm very angry with him about Mm -hmm. that for a long time. And uh, so we take this emotional trip and we're both like, kind of, I'm seeing my grandmother, he's seeing his mother and his father in their grave and behind the house, they bury them in the house behind the house where he grew up. It's very emotional. And we meet all this family and reconnect. And I learn about more about him on the trip. You know, I see a different side of him. I see him not depressed. I see him not angry. I see him jovial. I see, I learned stories that I never knew. Um, And I understand a little bit about what the United States had done to him, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think it's not uncommon for a lot of immigrants, but a lot of black people in general, it had beat him down in a way. And he had not lived up to the expectations that he had for himself. And, and that impacted his relationship with his wife and with his child. And I started to have the capacity because I had been get, receiving this love from Joseph and Jay and Wayne and Dean at this point, uh, and Barack Obama, I had, I, I had the capacity to forgive. And, uh, that starts the kind of reconciliation. And that was in 2004. Uh, my dad passes away in 2017. Um, so, but we have 13 years of, uh, you know, kind of really a rebuilding and, and doing a lot together and, Uh, He gets to be a great-grandfather to his three granddaughters. He doesn't meet his grandson, unfortunately, but uh, their relationship with him, Babagba is what they call him, which is Yoruba for grandfather. They have a very fond memory of him. And I think that is something I'm just really thankful for. And it kind of culminates with me leading, uh, taking care of him when he gets diagnosed with cancer in 2011. It's a, you know, it progresses And, uh, he ends up not being able to walk and, but he lives with us the last three and a half years of his life and, uh, is very engaged and, uh, we take care of him as he transitions and it was difficult, Wish we had more time, but I'm thankful that we were able to reconnect and end in a much better place. So I tell that story and we have a lot of conversations and that's, that's really the last chapter, which I think is universal too. How many of us have issues with parents or loved ones and we don't reconcile, uh, So this is part of that story.
1: Yeah, because from where the book begins, I would never expect that that would be um, how your relationship with him turned out. My grandmother, um, who's also passed away, she would always say, often say, just keep living. So many wild and crazy and unexpected things can happen. Relationships are repaired. People come back into your life. People leave your life. You reach heights that you never knew. Some people you grew up with, like you, your friend, you guys went in different directions, but just keep living. There's so many crazy things can happen. Unexpected things, I should say, absolutely. can happen.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, I love that you went back to Nigeria with your dad. I think everyone who, um, they have a living parent and they're able to travel back home with them and see like who their parents were before they became you know, mom and dad. Mm-hmm. I got the opportunity to do that with my mom going back to Detroit, and then also my dad going back to the country in Mississippi and I see my parents in an entirely different light
2: now. Yeah, you appreciate who they who they were where they came from, how they became who they are. Yeah, how they became especially as I said like the capacity to understand to empathize, to relate and you know and then and ultimately, you know, forgive, you know, we all we all get mad at our, our parents and loved ones, you know, the people that are closest to us, we get mad at the easiest, mm-hmm. you, know? <laughs> you know? And so uh, I, I think that's exactly right. Understanding them a little more deeply. Uh, that's one of the things I'm so, I so love about this book. I think, you know, like all, all, these men have an impact, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what it, the legacy it leaves for my children and my children's children, hopefully one day and, 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 and just others, so that they understand more about their family, but particularly their their grandfather, my father, about who he was and and his struggles, but also you know uh, his triumphs as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, well, like I don't have a book club and I keep saying like every time I read like a book that I'm super, super engrossed in, I'm like, I wish I had a book club because this would be in it. (laughs) If I had a book club, this would be a pick. Um, I I can't put your book down. When I finish this interview with you, instead of editing it, I'm going to go finish reading your book. So,
2: Oh, that's awesome. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for, for sharing. Maybe that's another one of your business ventures, a book club down the line
1: a book club from Ghana. What is my life right now? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's amazing. Like, it's amazing. So it
1: actually is. It's amazing. But yes, but thank you so much for, um, for speaking with me today and congratulations on your book and congratulations in advance on, on winning reelection on the 19th. I'm speaking it into existence for you.
2: Amen. Amen. Yes. I, I receive it. I receive it. And thank you so much for featuring it. And thank you for all you do to lift up both the ratchet and respectable Look, in, our, in our community.
1: Everybody needs representation. Everybody needs a voice. <laughs> <laughs> Give my love to Michelle and the kids, please. And we'll talk soon.
2: All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Demetria.
1: I adore him and his book. I can't wait to finish it. I didn't have a chance to read the whole thing because I was prepping for this move, but I I can't wait. Like, it's it's riveting. I wasn't just blowing smoke when I told him that I kept crying. It's a really well-written book. Um, It really sucks you in to about to say the characters, they're not characters, they're real people, but it really sucks you into the stories. He's very, very vulnerable and transparent in a way that we're not always used to men being. It's it's very, very beautiful um, and impactful. So please pick up a copy of Will's book, My Seven Black Fathers. And if you live in Montgomery County and you have not early voted, make sure you make it to the polls by the 19th. Okay? So that is our episode for today. As I told you last week, we're not going to have a new episode on Friday. I'm moving on Friday with the with the five hours to get home plus the time difference, it's a lot. So we will speak again next week. Okay, talk soon. Bye.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit angie.com that's a n g i . c o m. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours.